passage of Scripture here today. Craig mentioned we have this series for Christmas, and we're calling it the Eternal Purpose of Christmas. And last week, if you were with us, we looked at Christmas from God's perspective. And we saw that Christmas is actually much more than what we commonly consider it to be. A time of a holiday and celebration and giving gifts and, and showing good cheer to one another. And, and even more than, can I say, if you were with us last week, you'll remember, just Christ coming to save us from our sins, which is critically important, of course. But God uses the coming of Christ to earth as the key event to set up what would ultimately be the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies and the establishing of his kingdom reign, not just over the earth, but over the entire universe. And we looked at that last week. It was, kind of a, it was kind of a fun Bible study. And we got a little deeper into the scriptures as we did. Now, when we think about that big picture, and then we read this story that we just went through, how does all of that fit into all of this? Well, today, the title that I've given it is Behind the Scenes of the Traditional Christmas Story. And as usual with God, there's always more to the story than just meets the eye, amen? And the good news for us is, though, is that, well, he doesn't keep it a secret. God reveals to us, through his word, the things we need to understand. In fact, let me just remind you of a principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, that say, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. There's things that God has prepared for us that, your physical senses can't even comprehend. But the verses don't end there. It goes on in verse 10 and says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And so what I'd like for us to do today is we'll go before the Lord, we'll pray, we'll ask him to reveal to us the deeper things, the things that he wants for us to know the things that he has prepared for us not just for today not just for this christmas but for eternity and i think there's some answers for all of those things for us today so let's let's pray together heavenly father we are humbled as always when when we come into this time of year and we're reminded that all the things that you did to provide for us the privilege that it is to be forgiven of our sins we we're not worthy we don't deserve it but you've done it. You've given it to us as the ultimate Christmas gift. You, you gave your son so that we might know him, so that we might be saved. And, and not only that, you gave us your Holy Spirit to indwell us. You gave us your Holy Word to be the lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, I pray that you'll take those tools, the Spirit and the Word, and, and even my weak mouth and ability to speak, and take your word and teach us some things and show us the things that you'd have for us to understand. We desperately need to hear from you and we pray that you would give us that peek behind the curtain to some of the scenes that are going on behind the scenes in the great Christmas story. So we ask these things in anticipation of the great things you'll do in our heart and our life. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if we're going to look behind the scenes, I can't help but think that we probably should be asking some investigative questions. And that's kind of the, the outline form that we're going to use. So our first point is, uh, for what aim? For what aim? In other words, there's a lot going on in this story. There really is, and 
And the question I'd like for us to consider is, what is the aim? What is the purpose behind these things that are happening? What is, what is the desired aim of the details of this story? I mean, some of them are, well, I mean, if you just read stories, they're, they're, they're a bit unusual. Um, I don't know if you ever really paid that close attention to notice, but have you ever noticed that this famous Christmas story begins with worldwide taxation? Have you ever thought about the fact that, I mean, it was almost like the government, ruling government, the Roman Empire, wanted to make all the citizens pay for increased social services or something. Now, I don't know about you, my guess is, not making a political statement here today, by the way, my guess is, is that the citizens of the Roman Empire at that time probably weren't too thrilled about that idea. They probably saw that as somewhat of an imposition. Uh, the Roman Empire was led by a man named Caesar Augustus, and actually at that time in history, the Roman Empire was, had the greatest scope that it had ever had, at least up until that time. Uh, the reign of the Roman Empire, if you were to look it up, goes from the Middle East and, and most all of the European continent at that time. In fact, in verse number one, it says that all the world should be taxed. And then it goes on in verse 2, and it says then that this taxing, right, was first made. That means that this introduction of this taxation system was new. It was something that didn't previously exist. And this is the backdrop. This is, this is what's going on in the story to set up what we typically emphasize, the announcement to the shepherds and the angelic host and, and all of these things. And this taxation was a new move. Like I said, it... You know, it's just human nature to consider. The, the citizens were probably taken a little off guard, and they probably thought, oh, I, I don't like this, and, and what a hassle. Now, it's not just a hassle because now I have to pay taxes. It's a hassle because they were actually required to travel. Everybody had to go, at least in the, in the, in the, the region of Israel for sure, they, they all had to travel back to the city of their origin. And so for Joseph and Mary, the city of their origin was the city of David. It was Bethlehem, which is kind of in the central, southern, central part of Israel. And, but they lived up near Galilee in Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Israel. And the, the trip from Nazareth to Galilee would be about 75 miles. And, well, there's no highways and motor cars and that sort of thing. So they're either walking or using animals to travel. And it probably was about a three-day journey to get down there. This was no small event. But not just them. I mean, this potentially could have been continent-wide travel. As people, at least the Jews that were dispersed, would have come back to Israel, to their city, to then be counted and taxed and, and signed off on their taxation. So, what, what's going on with all of these things? What is the aim? Well, like in anything that you might study concerning the story of the Lord, the answer is, well, it depends. It depends on your perspective, doesn't it? It depends on how you're seeing it. And so there's a couple of different purposes, and that's what we're going to look at. In your notes, I put it this way, God's purpose versus Satan's purpose. And there's always two, right? There's always different ends to what's going on in what is seen on the outside. Let's begin with Satan's purpose. I think it's fairly clear that Satan's purpose was to kill the Christ child before he was born. The idea that Satan would eliminate the seed 
of promise that was ultimately prophesied to come and destroy him and his kingdom. The very first prophecy of Christ in all the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, right after the sin of Adam and Eve, and verse 15 says, the Lord says, And I will put enmity between thee, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And this actually points to the virgin birth because, well, we know that women don't have seed. Between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so all through the Old Testament narrative, you can actually track how Satan has been trying to destroy the promised seed. And so Satan himself, as the one, according to Ephesians 2 and verse number 2, that sets the course of this very world system. According to Matthew chapter 4 and verses 8 and 9, Satan is the one who literally controls currently the kingdoms of this world that are under his power. And at the time of the Roman Empire, the, the greatest world power of the day, Satan then moved his designated leader, Caesar Augustus, to set up a taxation system which would require, most importantly, Mary, a nine-month pregnant woman, to take a three-day-long journey, bumpy roads with animals, maybe on the back of a donkey, that when they would arrive, there'd be no hospital, no midwife, and no comfortable place for her to even rest. He would have been thinking, certainly she'll miscarry. Certainly. And the devil will be able to continue his reign. What a jerk, right? I mean, it kind of makes me mad. But the good news is that's not the whole story. Of course, it didn't work out that way. God has a purpose as well, right? And God's purpose was to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem also. God's purpose was in order to fulfill the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5 and verse number 2, that says, But thou, Bethlehem, Epaphra, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. He that's about to come forth had no origin because he's God. He's from everlasting. And when he comes forth in the form of a man, he's going to come forth born of a virgin in a particular city, Bethlehem. And God had to get Mary to Bethlehem. The Christ child had to be born in Bethlehem or the word of God would have not been fulfilled. And in order for that to take place, our loving Heavenly Father moved an entire continent. He moved an entire continent just to make sure it happened. Y'all don't know if you heard that right, but that is how much God loves us. That is how much the extent to which God will go to make sure that his word is fulfilled. These are the lengths to which he will go. And you could say that God used Satan to get it to be accomplished. Now that might be a hard saying for you. That might be a hard saying for you. 
I like to say it this way. The closer you get to God, the closer you get to Satan. Now, that may sound counterintuitive. You might think, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, God and the devil certainly are enemies. They certainly have polar opposite goals. Yes, of course. But what you'll find if you're ever involved in ministry, if you walk with the Lord and you attempt to make a difference for the Lord in your life, the closer you get to God, it's not the farther you get from Satan. It's the closer you get to Satan. Why? Because, because Satan is the expressed enemy of God and his plans, the closer you get to God, what you find is, is that you become more dangerous to the enemy. And when you become more dangerous to the enemy, well, guess who's going to show up to try and stop you from messing up his kingdom? The closer you get to God, the closer you get to Satan. Let me give you some examples of how closely it seems like they might be working from time to time. It's a famous example. If you look in 2 Samuel 24 and verse number 1, we have a story where it says, And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Notice, and he, the Lord, moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. A lot of you are aware that the story of the kings that come through Samuel and the kings and the chronicles, they overlap and they retell the story a second time in different ways. And so the parallel to this story is also read in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse number 1 where it says, notice, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So which was it? Was it God or was it Satan? The skeptics will say, well, there's an error in your Bible. See, you can't even trust the Bible. One place it says God, one place it says Satan. doesn't even know who's talking. How ridiculous. No, 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 no. You're not paying attention. You see, there's something going on here behind the scenes that maybe you didn't notice because although Satan had a goal to try and cause judgment to fall on Israel, by the way, to ultimately get rid of the seed through the lineage and house of David, God said, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go. Because I want some purging, I want some judgment, I want some cleansing so they can get their hearts right with me. And so on one hand, you see it referenced to God. On the other hand, you see it referenced to Satan. Most everybody who spent any time in church in the Bible knows the story of Job, right? And everybody knows the terrible trials that Job went through. And, and man, if you've ever gone through tough times in your life, you probably read the book of Job to feel better about yourself because you didn't have as bad as him, Right? And the terrible things that he went through, I mean, there's no question at all that the devil had a purpose in the story of Job. He wanted to persecute Job, and he wanted Job to curse God, right? In fact, that conversation between God and the devil in the first couple of chapters, he's like, well, no wonder he fears you. I mean, you gave him everything. You put a hedge of protection about him. He's got everything going for him. He's like, let me at him one time. He'll curse you. See, the devil had a purpose. I mean, did you ever read that story of Job and realize that that whole series of events in Job's life and his family and all the extended story of Job was not initiated by the devil? Go back and read it. God is the one who went over to the devil and said, Hey, 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 have you ever considered my servant Job? And you think to yourself, well, thanks, Lord. <laughs> thanks for that. You see, God had a purpose in the story of Job as well because although Job was a 
righteous man, a very religious man, a very moral man, a good family man, a wealthy man. He gave honor to God. He responded very well in the midst of a lot of trials. Job had some self-righteousness that wasn't revealed until later chapters. And ultimately, by the time you get to chapter 38, the Lord steps in and finally starts talking. And Job gets it. And he repents and he gets cleansed of it all. And you say, yeah, but in the meantime, they got, he lost all his stuff. His whole family was killed. Uh, did you read the end? He got, it all, he got all the stuff back double. See, the Lord used the devil to accomplish his even greater purpose. It's not that hard to understand. The closer you get to God, the more dangerous you are to the enemy. Look, if you're far from, if you're afraid of that, and you run far from God, don't think that, well, you run far from the enemy too. No, that just means that you've already been turned over by default to the control of the system set up by the devil, and he need not even give you any special attention. But here's where I want to land the plane, because you need to have a practical application for your life, and it's this. God's greater than your difficult circumstances. God is greater than your difficult circumstances. God is working behind the scenes of your story too. And listen, the devil may be active in your life, and your life may genuinely be very difficult today. And I don't mean to diminish that. But there is a greater purpose. And if you can just trust him, you will see that day. You will see that day. What is the aim of the story and some of these details? Well, it kind of depends. Because the devil has a purpose, but God has a purpose that's even greater. Let's ask the next question. For which advent are we speaking? For which advent? The first few words, the first eight words, as we started in chapter number two. And it came to pass... In those days. Now, you Bible students that have been through our ministry tools and training and how to study the Bible course, and by the way, if you've never taken advantage of that, I encourage you to. There's some great tools available so that you can unlock the keys of the Scripture and understand them for yourselves. And one of the many things that you'll learn in a class like that, many of you already have, is that there are key words and phrases all through the Scriptures. And we don't have time to prove it today, but just take my word for it and take the class and you'll see for yourself that one of the phrases that's a key word and phrase that always has a particular doctrinal meaning is that phrase, those days. Those days will always point doctrinally to the time of the tribulation. The time of the tribulation is that time typically thought of as seven years, most certainly the last three and a half of which are all the terrible things the book of Revelation described. That time of tribulation immediately precedes the second advent. Of Jesus Christ. Hmm. But yet we read, it came to pass in those days. And you say, well, just those days, just those days. Okay, historically it's just those days back then. But prophetically, actually we're, we're looking at in a different time altogether. So, which advent is the advent that we're really talking about when we read the story in Luke chapter 2, the first one or the second one? Well, certainly... The Bible is a history book, if anything, right? And certainly, God accurately records the history of the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus and 
and Cyrenius and the taxation and the movement and the, certainly these things happened at the first advent over 2,000 years ago. Of course, that's true. But can I point out to you that if at the time when God came to earth in the form of a man with the purpose we saw last week of establishing his kingdom, if at that time Israel would have received him as their Messiah, if they would have accepted his righteousness and the kingdom of God first, well then, the story would have continued with the rest of the fulfillment of the prophecies and gone straight through into the kingdom age back then. You know what we would have never had? We would have never had 2,000 years of a church age. And you say, what? I can't even follow what you're talking about. It's okay, just get what you can. I'm telling you that the way the scriptures are set up, it was all contingent upon that one entrance of Jesus Christ onto the world stage. And everything was set in place, and it was ready. How do you know that? Well, because there are common elements that are present in both his first advent that are prophesied to also be present at his second advent. And I have several of them listed for in your notes. Number one, there's a Roman dictator ruling the world. Now, in our story, it's Caesar Augustus. But Caesar Augustus is a great picture and a great type of the coming Antichrist who runs a one-world government. Again, in Rome, like I mentioned before, the greatest scope and the greatest spread of the Roman Empire in history, influencing most of the known world. I referenced verse number one, that all the world, the Holy Spirit wrote it that way, all the world should be taxed. Do you remember the story, many of you, in Daniel chapter 2, that great prophecy where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in his dream he has this image, and this giant image has a head of gold, and it has the chest and the arms of silver, and it has the belly and the thighs of brass, and the legs of iron, and then it goes into the feet that are iron mingled with clay. And, and he didn't understand what the dream meant, and he calls his wise men, and, and they couldn't figure it out, and then eventually they call Daniel. And Daniel goes in, and, and with the help of the Lord, God gives him the interpretation and the understanding of the dream, and, and it's all laid out for you in Daniel chapter 2. And when you go through that, and you can go through that on your own, he, he tells him that that head of gold represents King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. And the image of Daniel chapter 2 is the running history of the ruling world Gentile nations from the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the coming of the Antichrist and the setup ultimately then of the stone that strikes it in the feet and brings it down and, and then the ultimate establishing of Christ's kingdom over all the world. So the head of gold is Babylon and the chest and the arms of silver, well that's Media Persia that took over from Babylon because two nations work together as one, like two arms, Media and Persia. And then the belly and the thighs of brass, well that goes on comparing scripture with scripture and other places in Daniel's prophecy. That's the kingdom of Greece. The legs then of iron, well that's Rome. And that is the Roman Empire of which we read that's in charge of the world at the time of Jesus Christ's first advent, Christmas. But I don't know if you ever noticed it or not, 
that image, when it goes from the legs of iron into the feet, every other transition is to an entirely different metal. Gold to silver, silver to brass, brass to iron. But from the legs to the feet, the iron continues. That iron is still there, only now it's mixed with clay. It's less strong. So the iron never goes away. So Rome never goes away. I'll let you work on that one on your own for a while. But whatever it is, you need to know. A lot of people that study prophecy and write about it, they talk about this thing called the revived Roman Empire. And the idea is, is just as Rome was in power politically when Jesus Christ came the first time, so Rome will be in power when Jesus Christ comes back again in the last days. Why? Because the iron never goes away. And the final kingdom that's going to come in with the Antichrist, well, it says it in a lot of places very briefly. Let me just say this. It's ushered in at first during a time of peace. And, well, Rome at this time in history, 2,000 years ago, was at a time of peace. Again, they already conquered their enemies. They were in charge of everything. But you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of that white horse rider in Revelation chapter 6. And, well, Revelation chapter 6, we're looking forward now to the second time when Christ will ultimately come and, well, a lot of your commentators will get this all wrong. In Revelation 6, 2, it says, I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him. Who's that? Well, he had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Well, some people might think that that white horse rider is Jesus Christ, but it's not Jesus Christ. That white horse rider is clearly the Antichrist. He's coming in peaceably, as we'll see in a minute in Daniel in another chapter. He has a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. He's got a bow and he's conquering, right? So that white horse rider is the Antichrist and he begins his reign with peace. That's how he begins. Well, let's look at another element of the story. Number two, there's a Syrian governor over Israel. Cyrenius is his name at the time. We see that in verse number two. Now, back then, you should understand that Israel was a province of Syria in the Roman Empire as far as their political responsibility. And there's something that you need to understand, that there's, there's always going to be a particularly important connection, historically and prophetically, between Israel and Syria. There's something about Israel and Syria that you need to watch for. And what you should expect to see is that eventually, that there will be a ruler that will enter the scene in Israel in the last days, who will actually be a half-breed Syrian Jew. And that half-breed Syrian Jew will ultimately usher in this peace, and we'll see that again in just a second. But that shouldn't be that hard for you to understand because, well, the very first Jew, if you want to consider it that way nationally, well, it was Jacob. Jacob was the one whose name was changed to Israel, right? And referencing Jacob in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse number 5, it says this, And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, notice, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt, that was Jacob, and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, which became Israel, right? Great, mighty, and populous. Wait a minute. Jacob, the father, is a Syrian. Well, that's not that hard to understand because you know who his mother is, don't you? 
His mother is Rebecca. Rebecca is the wife of Isaac, and we read about her in Genesis 25 and verse 20. It says, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife. Notice who Rebekah is. The daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, and the sister to Laban, the Syrian, in case you didn't get it. The Lord's trying to get your attention. So Jacob himself comes from this Syrian blood. And that's going to be a scene in the last days. Well, we find them showing up in the early days as well. Well, number three, let's look at our list, global taxation. Well, we've already talked about this issue of taxation, but I want you to see Daniel's prophecy of the last days in Daniel chapter 11 concerning the person, and again, the context, go back and read it, is the person of the Antichrist. Daniel chapter 11, verse 20. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes. There you go. In the glory of the kingdom, but within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. And in his estate shall stand up a, this is another key word if you're studying, a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably, white horse rider, Revelation chapter 6. He shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom, not with war, with flatteries, with flatteries. So here's this scenario where we have this eloquent orator who negotiates a peace treaty in Israel with the Palestinians, something nobody could ever do. I don't care how many times you take the leaders to Camp David and, and you give up land for peace, and it never, it never works, does it? Well, there's going to be a guy who's going to show up, and he's going to negotiate peace between Israel and Palestine. And he's going to raise taxes globally to sustain it and well, when he does all of that, you know what he's going to do? He's going to garner the adoration of the entire world, which is all the devil ever really wanted anyways, was to be worshipped, right? But he's a counterfeit. And the Bible says he's vile. He's evil. He's a counterfeit. Well, number four, there's something else that's common from the first advent and the second advent, and that's that there's a universal language. Do you realize that the whole world at that time had one universal language? It was the language of Greek. That's what it was. Do you realize in this day and time in which we live right now, there's again a universal language, and you're lucky enough to have been born in the country that speaks it as our mother tongue. So English literally is the universal language. It's the language of trade. It's the language of commerce. It's the language of international politics. It's the language of travel. If you've ever traveled internationally, you know that wherever you go, in any airport anywhere, they have all the signs written in their language and in English. Isn't that handy? It's, it's the language of air traffic. It's the language of all of these things. It's a universal language. It's the language of international media. People speak English all over the world. And, well, you know, you've, you've heard the joke, right? What do you call a person who speaks three languages? Trilingual, what do you call a person who speaks two languages? Bilingual, what do you call a person who speaks one language? American. <laughs> I mean, you've heard the joke. Okay, why is that? Well, not because we're dumber than everybody. Not, no, because the truth of the matter is, we don't necessarily need to learn foreign languages. So our education system is not set up to begin to teach the kids in third grade or whatever, like they do all around the world, to learn foreign languages. Because for us, we can go anywhere in the world and they speak our language. Quite a privilege, actually. Well, the situation is just the same. We're bad at learning languages because we don't have to, but 
But man, this is, this is another picture. This is another sign. This is another piece of the puzzle that connects the first advent to the second and last advent. You see, the scene was set. The stage is ready. The players are in place. Now enter Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. And how exactly does he reveal himself when he comes? Well, there's two phases to his revealing. First, he shows himself privately to his family. When Jesus shows up as a baby and the announcement's made to the family, obviously he's born into the family. He, he was revealed to his family first. And then later, when he's at age 30 and he's baptized and the voice of God comes down from heaven, this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased. And, and then he's revealed publicly to the entire world sometime later. Well, at his second coming, we see the exact same thing. The first revelation of Jesus Christ is privately to you, his family, church. We call that the rapture of the church. And then some years later, the actual, literal, visible, bodily second advent of Jesus Christ to all the world that every eye will see him. That's publicly to the rest of the world because he's following a pattern. And here's what you need to understand. To understand God's eternal purpose for Christmas. You need to understand that Christmas is an advent of God to earth. And an advent marks the culmination of all things. And at the first advent, it could have been the end then. So there was a lot more going on behind the scenes than you may have realized. And when it came time to actually tell people about what was happening, well, again, there's some interesting facts. And so let's go to our third point today, and that's why this announcement. Why this particular announcement, this first announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ outside of his immediate family was to, number one, shepherds in the field. Shepherds in the field. I mean, that, think about it for a second. I mean, of all the jobs in the world, shepherds. Now, you know, shepherds get a good word in the Bible, but outside of the Bible, I mean, a shepherd is, I mean, it's just a kid watching sheep. <laughs> I mean, that's what they made David do when all the other brothers had important jobs. Pass that, if you had a little brother, you couldn't wait to pass that job on to him. But David was the last one. He got stuck with it. Okay, so, shepherds why shepherds i mean why not if he's coming to set up his kingdom why not government officials even the wise men that wasn't at the actual birth the wise men come some years later in the actual chronology well let's consider it maybe and i think this is a fair consideration maybe because shepherds are just common people and all through the revelation of the scriptures, it's always the common man who gladly receives the Lord and his word. And it's always the people of high prestige and power and, and let's just say what it really is, pride, that reject him. They see him as a threat to their kingdom. Shepherd has no kingdom. Shepherd has sheep. That's as low as you can probably get in the socioeconomic schedule. But besides that, besides that, I mean, 
You know this. Jesus Christ himself is the good shepherd. <laughs> John chapter 10. He is the good shepherd, and well, John chapter 1, 29, he's also the Lamb of God. That's who he is. And so some of the greatest types of Jesus Christ all through the Bible, well, wouldn't you know it, they were shepherds. Abel was a shepherd, Jacob was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd. I already mentioned David was a shepherd, and David may be the greatest type of Jesus Christ of all because Jesus then shows up being called the son of David. We saw last week sitting on the throne of David in the house of David. He's of the tribe of David. So these lowly shepherds, right, like them, well, Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd who watches over his flock by night. We see in 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd, capital S, shall appear, Jesus Christ, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And then 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 describes the time. We all have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until something happens. The day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That day star, you know what the day, this is not hard, the day, what is the star of the day? It's the sun. The sun is the star that burns during the day that gives light unto the world. It's the beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is, in Malachi chapter 4, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, who's going to arise in the morning of the new day, the day of the Lord, the coming kingdom of him. The sun is going to arise. That means that now, for the last 2,000 years, when Jesus Christ isn't here on the earth, the time between the advents, he says, I'm the light of the world, so when the light is gone, this is real deep. You all ready with your pencils? It's nighttime. It's nighttime. And where does the announcement come? To shepherds watching over their flock at nighttime. At nighttime. I mean, it's not like the angel was like, hmm, can't find anybody. Now I'll go see those guys. No, this was planned. This is important. So the sun rises in the morning, and well, just before he does, well, it's, it's nighttime. And that's what our chief shepherd is doing right now. He's doing what those shepherds are doing. He's watching over his flock at nighttime. That's what he's doing right now. And that's why these shepherds received the announcement of his first coming. No surprise. So the announcement came to the shepherds, and it came from the angel of the Lord. It came from the angel of the Lord. Now, who could that be? Well, verse 9 says that when he did this announcement, it, that the glory of the Lord shone round about him. Do you know what the Bible refers to when it talks about the glory of the Lord? The glory of the Lord is that, we typically think of it like the shining bright light or whatever, but the idea is it's the literal manifestation of the presence of the Lord. Wherever the Lord appears, His glory appears. The glory is the manifestation of His very presence. But could it be 
Well, let's look into the scriptures and see if we can define it. Well, in Acts 27 and verse 23, Paul is giving his testimony before the officials. He says, For there stood by me this night the angel of God. He goes on to describe the angel of God. Whose I am and whom I serve. Who do you think he was talking about? Whose is Paul? Well, he's the Lord's. Who does Paul serve? Or whom does he serve? He serves the Lord. So the angel of God would be the manifestation of God himself. It's, it's Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 14. In my temptation, which was in my flesh, he despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as, here it is, Christ Jesus. Frequently, maybe not 100% of the time, but frequently, often throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It was what we call a theophany or a Christophany. It's just a big word that means a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, that's how he's referred to. And so, could it be that Jesus Christ himself the chief shepherd watches over his flock at night, appears and, and makes the announcement to the shepherds that are watching over their literal flock at night. What's the announcement? Oh, the, the child is born in a manger. Wait a minute. He's busy being the child. How in the world is he also making the announcement? Have we forgotten that he's God? And I think one of those characteristics of God was omnipresent. Don't limit your thinking. God is everywhere. Do you really believe that he's here and there and in every other church and all around the world and with the people sleeping on the other side of the world and with us today? Yes, you believe that. He's everywhere. Can Jesus Christ be the babe in the manger and the angel making the appearance? Of course he can. Of course he can. Interesting little announcement, I'd say. Well, what did he have to say? Number three is proclaiming the gospel. What do you think he'd say? Behold, I bring you, here it is, good tidings, good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. Of great joy, which shall be to Israel only. No, to all people. That's why this is great news. Why is this such great? Well, he goes on. You don't have to guess. It's in there. Verse 11, for unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior. Well, we've looked at this already. Jesus Christ is. That's what his name means. Jehovah is Savior which is Christ the Lord, in case you were confused. That's who it is. A Savior is born. And he's born for all people. Let's stop here for a second. Let me just remind everybody here today. You know what that means? That means it's for you. That means it's for you. The, yeah, the Old Testament story is primarily focused on Israel. Yeah, they, they were the ones that should have received him and didn't. Yeah, and since they didn't, everything was postponed. Aren't you glad, by the way? which opened the door to give you the chance, Gentile, most of you probably all are Gentiles as I am, to be able to hear the gospel. I was born in the 1960s, and well, there wouldn't have been the 1960s if all this would have happened back then. I wouldn't even be here, neither would you. Listen, it's the long-suffering and love of God, and he came, and this is great news, and it's great news for everybody. It's the gospel. It's for you. You can respond to this as well. People can be saved from their sin. Where is he born? As a baby, well, he's born in the city of David. The city of David is Bethlehem. We've already determined that. You know what that name Bethlehem means, literally? It means house of bread. That's what it means. 
Bethlehem means the house of bread. Well, that shouldn't surprise you. John 6, 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And so when he was born, where did they lay him? They laid him in a manger. What's a manger? Well, a manger, that's a, that's a feeding trough for animals. So Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Have you trusted in him? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you realize that the one who is the bread of life was born as a man in the city of bread, in the house of bread in Bethlehem, of which God had no problem whatsoever of moving all the people, moving an entire continent, just so that that can be fulfilled, just so that the word of God is pure and perfect and fulfilled and complete and right and holy and trustworthy, which means you can trust it with your soul and your salvation as well. That's what Christmas is. That's what it is. Number four, he's also bringing a sign. He's bringing a sign because, well, the Jews require a sign, and we know that. And so the sign that it says is he will, there will be a babe in swaddling clothes. Well, some of you may know that swaddling is to wrap up tightly. Okay, and so you, you wrap the baby up tightly. We actually have a photo of a swaddled baby to give you the idea. We don't have a photo of a swaddled baby. Pretend that you're looking at a photo <laughs> of a beautiful, it was the most beautiful little baby, this photo. The swaddling is when they're wrapped up real tight. You've seen them? And they're, you know, they're as cute as they can be, and they're all, and, and in a lot of countries today, parents swaddle the babies. It tends to give them comfort. It tends to cause them to be calm and that sort of thing. People argue whether it's good or not. At the end of the day, it's something that happens. Think of it this way. Strips of cloth wrapped around kind of like a mummy, okay? The sign that is given to them, the sign, is there's a baby wrapped up, wound up in swaddling clothes because this baby that is just born is born to die. He's born to die. And that's what we see. So, for example, in Acts chapter 5 and verse number 6, we have the story of Ananias, and, and he lies before Barnabas and the leaders of the Jews about money that he got and didn't get, and he lied to the Lord ultimately, and he dies. He drops dead just right there. And in Acts 5, 6, it says, And the young men arose. What did they do? They wound him up. They swaddled him. They wrapped him in the swaddling clothes. And they carried him out and buried him. We see this about Jesus Christ at his death. It says in John 19, 40, they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. To bury. And the, and the word is, there's going to be a sign. There's going to be a babe and he's going to be in a manger and he's going to be swaddled. You know that there's only one other sign in the Bible that's given concerning the life of Jesus Christ, and it's found in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38, where it says, And certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. 
But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas, or Jonah, if you will. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just as Jonah died in the belly of that whale, but was resurrected again to life when he spit him up on shore, so Jesus Christ came to die. But he wouldn't stay dead. He would be raised again to life. And that is the gospel. That is the good news, right? It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for your sins. That's why he did it. And I don't know if you get it or not, but that's a message worth getting excited about. That's a message worth rejoicing about. Amen? So what do we see in verses 13 and 14? And suddenly there was with the angel, we already know who the angel is now, now there's a multitude of the heavenly host. And what are they doing? They're praising God because of this message that has been declared, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And please, y'all, we cannot pass this Christmas season without pointing out that there are three elements and they come in order and you cannot get the order messed up. The first is glory to God in the highest. Everybody today wants to talk about peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And some of your Bibles, if it's a different translation, would even say peace on earth to men of goodwill. None of that's the truth. The thing you need to get is glory to God in the highest has to be first because if you were with us last week, you already know because we proved it, if you weren't with us, you can listen to it if you're interested. But righteousness always precedes peace. Purity always precedes peace. The kingdom of God, which is spiritual, has to precede the kingdom of heaven, which is physical. No glory to God in the highest. There is going to be no peace on earth. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, and there's not going to be peace on earth until he, the Prince of Peace, shows up, establishing his righteousness first. So there has to be glory to God in the highest first before there can ever be world peace. So somebody ought to tell Miss America that. I mean, if she's interested in working towards world peace, and by the way, that's a noble goal. I think that she shouldn't go off spouting that she's all for world peace unless that means that she's all for giving God the glory in the highest. Amen. And if she's all for giving God the glory in the highest, then I'll stand with her. I'll stand with her, because that's the only way you're going to get peace, right? So you've all seen this little ditty. I put it in your notes. By chance, somebody hasn't seen it before. No God, no peace, N-O. No God, K-N-O-W, and then you can K-N-O-W, no peace. That's just how it works. If you don't have God in your life, you don't have peace in your life. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how successful you are. I don't know how many people you have that you can bark orders at, and they'll jump and do it. In the end of the day, you're going home with your flesh and your sin still. Everybody's got problems, man. Without God, you can't have any peace. But if you know God, even though life is turbulent around you, you can have peace in your heart. You can have it. And some of you came to church today and you had no idea why you were coming to church, but God wants you to get this message. If you know Him, you can have peace in your heart. You say, but you don't know my circumstances. You're right, and I don't need to. It doesn't matter. I know the one who rules over them. 
And he can give you peace in the midst of the storm just like the disciples on that boat in the middle of the storm. Without God, there is no peace, but with him there is. And only when the situation is peaceful in your heart and your soul and your life can you show goodwill toward men. Because goodwill toward men only comes in a time of peace. Because when your life is rocking on that boat and everything's in turmoil, you're thinking about, number one, you're thinking about survival. You're not thinking about goodwill towards others until you get you and yours all set and set up. So this was a special announcement. And it carried a far greater message than just a Christmas carol. And maybe, maybe, I'd say, the most sobering statement of this entire passage of Scripture for me, and maybe for you, comes in verse number 7. When they arrived in Bethlehem, it says, there was no room for them in the inn. You see, Bethlehem was a small town. And now, due to this continent-wide travel for taxation, there's a lot of visitors in little Bethlehem. And they have the taxation system, but not just the taxation system, because Jesus Christ is born during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is going on. And all the hotels are full, and all the homes of the people that might keep people in their homes are full, and there wasn't any room for Jesus Christ. There's no room for Jesus Christ. And I want you to let that sink in for a second. Because you know what? It's not necessarily all that different from life today, is it? Because I put this in your notes just so you'd have it, but this world has no room for Jesus Christ, even on a holiday that celebrates his birth. You see, we like the holiday, we like the trees, we like the lights, we like the presents, we like the time off of work, we like all that stuff. But don't talk to me about righteousness. Don't talk to me about my sin. Don't talk about the plan of God for the universe. I'm just trying to get by today. Okay, I can respect the fact that your life might be tough and you're consumed with some immediate circumstances. But can I tell you, if you're missing the eternal purpose of Christmas, you're missing it. And you'll go through this cycle day after day and year after year until your life is gone and it's too late for you. But it's not too late for you. You're still breathing. There's hope for you, just like there's hope for everybody. This world system is so messed up, you can't even say Merry Christmas in stores anymore if you're employed by the stores, right? Not to mention all those evil antichrist coffee cups you get. <laughs> but what about in church? Well, thank God for the church. What a reprieve in the church. Oh, really? Not in Laodicea, it's not. Because in Laodicea, we read about a church where people come into church and they shut the doors and, oh, yeah, Jesus is on the outside. We're having church. We ain't got time for Jesus. Revelation 3.20, Jesus Christ, behold, I stand at the door and knock, the door of the church. And he's waiting for somebody to open the door and let him in. So here we are. We're in a beautiful church building. It's all decorated. We've got climate control. But in some of y'all's perspective, Jesus ain't here. You don't have any room for him. You're no different than the people in Bethlehem. There's no room for him. You don't have room for Jesus. Let's get this Christmas present thing out of the way because I'm waiting for mine. I got room for Jesus. It's a sad state of affairs. You know what the good news is? You can change that today. He still loves you. He still died for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. His grace goes far beyond the level of your sin. He offers you salvation and new life and hope and purpose and love 
but you have to respond. Similar to that church in Laodicea, he's not going to bust the door of your life down. He wants you to open it and invite him in. He's a gentleman. But it's up to you whether you're going to do it or not. How about you? How about you in your life? How about you in your heart? Will you make room for Jesus Christ? Come on. Let's quit being so stubborn. Let's quit living life the way we've been living life, and let's let this Christmas mean something. Will you? Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us so much and coming to this earth and dying on the cross that we deserve, saving us from our sin, offering us the gift of eternal life. But Lord, it is a gift. And as such, we need to receive it. So I want to pray, Lord, for anybody in this room who looking at themselves and their personal life story in the light of your word would say, look, if my life ended today, I don't know that I'd have an eternal home with Jesus Christ, but I sure would like to. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody like that, that they would just sincerely, in their own words, sincerely before you, just cry out for forgiveness. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I'm so sorry. I've made a mess of my life, and I don't have any peace in my heart and my life, and now I know why. So, Lord, forgive me of my sins and come into my heart and my life and give me that free gift of eternal life. And I, I surrender all to you right now, and I, I'll follow you from today forward. I don't even know what that means, and it doesn't even matter. Whatever it means, I want to follow you. You came to be the Savior of the world, and, Lord, I want you to be my Savior in my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Lord, a lot of us have already made that decision. And we come to church week in and week out and week in and week out and we leave out of here and no more think about you until next Sunday when we search for our Bible on the shelf somewhere and dust it off so that we don't look foolish when we walk into a church. But there's no room for you in our hearts and our lives. Our lives have become like the Laodiceans and we go through our motions and we have our religion and we have our rituals and our traditions, but the reality of you in our heart and our lives, well, there's just no room in the end. And I pray if there's anybody in that category, and well, my hunch is there are, that they would honestly before you today decide enough is enough. I'm going to surrender it all. Lord, come back into my heart and my life on a daily basis. I re-surrender and rededicate all of my life to you. I confess all of my sinfulness and my rebellion and, and commit to you, Lord, to follow you afresh starting right now. Lord, thank you for your grace that's always extended to us. We have scoffed at it far too often, and yet you love us enough to always offer it. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and stand up with me. We're going to close today's service with a worship song. As always, we'll be passing the offering.